Are you going to kill me? I would certainly like to. I know you would. I can feel your anger. It gives you focus, makes you stronger. Trent. Parth Marate, uh, call me crazy. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yes, as of uh, when this comes out, it'll be the day after, but... Also known as Boxing Day. True. Yeah, no, it's it's Christmas, guys. Santa, Santa, Santa Claus came. Yeah, um, he came this morning. He left me and my loved one's gifts. Trent, what'd you get? Um, I got this Soprano sweatshirt that I'm wearing. Most importantly, um, due to an uptick in the COVID cases... We are, we didn't go to our extended family's house, and our parents were like, let's just schedule our booster appointments and then go we- see West Side Story, and I was like, fuck yes. And um, Parth, uh, I don't mean to keep you in suspense, but do you want me to read you my letterbox review? Yeah, we held off on Trent doing this so that we could do it on air for, for, for you guys. For genuine uh, effect. Um, four and a half stars and a like um, called... Oh, and it reads, it's almost like Steven Spielberg knows exactly what he's doing. It's funny because this uh, the Steven Spielberg you speak of is one of the most prolific and highly acclaimed and commercially successful directors. But I've, even though Steven Spielberg early in his career has made some of my favorite movies of all time, I've joked that past Catch Me If You Can in 2001 that Steven Spielberg hasn't made a great movie in a long time. And Tintin, Tintin. And War of the Worlds is often your your immediate counter argument, um, but this this was fucking awesome. And one of our longtime fans, um, Nathan Snyder, he wrote a review, and I really liked it. Can I can I can I read it aloud? Yes, please. On the air, Nathan, if you're listening to this, we like your letterbox reviews. Thanks for listening. We also to the- like you and think you're awesome, and Thanks. thank you for supporting the show. Thanks for listening to the show. Long, long time fan. He wrote, "It's been a long time since I'd seen something from Spielberg to remind me why he is indeed the king." And um, Uncle Steve's the king. That's all we're here to say. And tomorrow, the Algar clan is taking on Licorice Pizza. And so mm, PTA. not having to see my cousins and just going to the movies all the time, um, it's the season of giving. Wait, licorice pizza? That gets me in a mind for food. Trent, what have you been what have you been eating? What do you eat? We have to get through this. Yeah, I forgot that was like the whole show. Um We are a food show. After we got back from uh, La Cinema. I was hungry, so I made myself a smoothie, and I whipped up a little egg breakfast sandwich sort of situation. What about you? Uh, Well, as you saw, uh, minutes before we got on call, I was eating a cinnamon bun that my brother had prepared. Mm -hmm. Um, I I had had Christmas dinner at friend of the show, Sophia Alexis's house. Tune into the Gone Girl discussion if you want to hear Sophia Alexis's opinions. Yeah, and see her absolutely demolish that movie. Yeah, two out of ten. What's that all about? Yeah, go see the episode to find out. Um, but I was hungry coming back. Trent, you want to know what movie we saw? What holiday classic we watched? Oh, my gosh. Uh, no, I don't know. But Do you, you want should, to guess? You should t- I'm not going to guess because they're... Guess, wait, is on. it is it one of the Cornerstone Christmas movies? Um, sure, yeah, guess. Like, I don't know, the, Jim Carrey's The Grinch. It was Spider-Man 3, Trent. Oh, on Christmas Day, how timely. I know, I know. Wait, so did you sit down and watch it, like, end to end? Yes. 
like why? Like I, I mean, like you're not wrong, but why? Like on a day like this? Every now and then, Sophia and I will scroll on TikTok, and there's been a uptick in bully Maguire memes that have been going around uh, with the release of the new Spider-Man movie. Bully Maguire being emo Peter Parker from Spider-Man Three. Yeah. So this is sort of a a renaissance for yeah. for the finger gun Toby Maguire. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Sophia, have you ever actually seen Spider-Man 3, mm-hmm. like, from beginning to end? And she was like, no. Like, I, I I know all the memes and everything, but, like, she'd never seen it fully. And so we watched it. I, well, let's circle back to this, but I believe I was physically present when Sophia Alexis, friend of the show, admitted that she she casually just rang off the fact that she'd never seen The Dark Knight. And we were like, Sophia, like, oh my gosh, like, you have to watch it. And she was like, yeah, like, maybe we'll get to it. And I was like, Sophia, like, you don't know, like, how much this means to Parth. And then you played it off all cool. And you're like, yeah, no, like, it's a pretty good movie. Like, you should watch it, like, if you have the time. But what do you think of Spider-Man 3? Uh, we have, like, similar opinions. I, like, I think that it, I mean, we'll cut to the show soon. But I think Spider-Man 3 is overhated. I think it's overcrowded. It has a lot of weird writing. But it's... Through that weird right, I mean, Sam Raimi is like very present in every frame, and I think it's weirder and more interesting and more entertaining to watch than most blockbuster movies that come out nowadays. And if you think Mary Jane is the problem in that movie, you're probably a misogynist. Yep. Um, I feel like people have come full circle on Spider-Man 3. Not to do a segue here, but in the same way that they've come full circle on the Star Wars prequels. We're Wait, like that actually, yeah, that brings like us the, in. Like, they're not good in the traditional fashion, but 20 years later, you can really enjoy them in a slightly ironic way. Yeah, so maybe maybe that's how we cue in to our intro, or cue out of our intro. What? The grand finale? The prequel winter? Yeah, it's our last interview, isn't it? Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith? All right, cue the intro. Welcome back. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. It's funny that we still say hopefully have a crew member of that film when it's like every week we like absolutely do. I mean, every other week, but also maybe it's just our way of like not jinxing this or maybe it's like funny. I don't know. No, no, you're right. I guess there in our in our in our prehistoric days, it wasn't a guarantee. But now we have sort of like industry cred. Yeah, we're kind of in fucking destructible. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. Uh, and speaking of the fact that Parth and I are never going to die, um, neither will um, friend of the show Matt Toll, who yeah. uh, is the assistant camera man on Star Wars: Revenge of the Sith this week's film, and yeah. we like did like a delightful little interview. Yeah, he was super, super awesome. Really nice to us. Uh. You know, gave us a bunch of cool little tidbits about the movie. Talked with us about George Lucas. Uh, it was it was a fun time. Trip. Yep. He also talked with us about Mission Impossible Two. Uh, That's true. He worked on The Matrix, uh, The Matrix Reloaded, The Thin Red Line, uh, Alien Covenant, and I believe off the air he told us about Deep Blue Sea. 
I think there was a fun anecdote. Yeah, there was. There that, was. That you mere mortals at home will never be privy to. Probably yeah. had something to do with sharks. Probably something to do with Samuel L. Jackson. But um, you guys just get all the, you know, the what you can handle. Yeah, you can only get what we can keep on air. You know what I mean? We yeah. can't reveal all the secrets. After the interviews stop, like the minute we stop recording, the guests... People are comfortable, and they'll, they'll They tell us anything, some juicy you know? stuff. They're like, do you know Leonardo DiCaprio? I dated him. Yeah, it's pretty Yester- insane. I went on a date with Brad Pitt yesterday. And you know what? That actually has happened, and we won't tell you which guest it was. Yeah. Well, we don't want to take up too much of your time since we're just about, we're going to ask you to like be present for the next like 40 to 50 minutes for the entirety of the interview. So we'll stop running our mouths and we can get into the thick of things. No? Yeah, I think it's time. Cue the interview? Yeah, the little sound effect. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Matt Toll. He's worked on projects like The Wilds, Mad Max Fury Road, Superman Returns, and many more things you've definitely heard of. He was also the first assistant camera for our film for today, Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Just to start off, if you could just tell us how you first got involved in the film industry. Yeah, well, I didn't um, I didn't sort of go down the film school path. I, um, I left school. I got into a an economics degree actually at university and I don't really know how I found myself there and and then really through a friend of mine's a friend of mine's mother who was um you know working in the film industry as a as a booking agent in Melbourne in Australia um yeah she just heard about a job as a runner at a, at a commercial production company I'd never thought about being in the film industry or at that point but um you know the job sounded interesting I went for an interview and yeah and ended up spending about three years there as a runner on on um, yeah, TV commercials, and that's kind of how I got into it. And how did you gravitate or find yourself in the camera department? Uh, well, I was there. I sort of worked with. Um, I worked a lot with some camera assistants and DPs there that worked on feature films. That you know worked on American feature films, and you know that sounded super exciting to me. I was I was um, had naturally gravitated towards the camera department in my time there. I really liked it. I found it interesting and. And, you know, fortunately, like, started working with these guys that um, I spoke to and told them I was interested in camera and they kind of took me under their wing and started training me up, you know, back in the days of loading film and worked on bigger and bigger commercials with them and then ended up leaving that company and, and then working freelance with, you know, one of the guys in particular on on American feature films. I started on a, on a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie, actually, that came to Sydney back in the early 90s and then... Films like Thin Red Line and Mission Impossible and those films as a second AC, so kind of got got on a roll then when those films were coming to Australia. Can you quickly explain what a first assistant camera person does? Yeah, totally. Well, they, I mean, an A camera first assistant basically, you know, runs the day to day running of the camera department. You know, there's the camera operators above them and obviously the DP, but you know, the first AC is responsible for, you know, the organisation of the equipment, the day-to-day running of the equipment, the running of the department, you know, communication on set around all of that. And um, and also, obviously, the, the fundamentals of, you know, the focus of the camera and, and the changing of lenses and organising equipment and all that. You were a first assistant camera on Star Wars Episode 3. 
Revenge of the Sith. Uh, yeah. How did you get involved with that one? Because that seems like a pretty awesome job. Yeah, well, um, yeah, everyone wants to be involved in a Star Wars film at some point, don't they? Like, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And yeah, we were lucky in that time. Like, um, Attack of the Clones had been shot in Australia before that, a few years before that, and um, I wasn't involved in that. But I was working with a producer at the time, um, Stephen Jones, who on a film Peter Pan that was being shot in Australia at the time. And I was eight camera first on that film, and and his next project was Revenge of the Sith. So he spoke to me about that and told me that David Tattersall was coming out from the UK to shoot it and, um, yeah, put me in touch with him and we started talking and, you know, we got on well and I was offered the job and, and went on from there. Uh, so I was just wondering, like, what scenes, if any, you partic- you remember particularly working on? And also I was curious uh, of which of the scenes were filmed in Australia. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I actually watched the film yesterday because of this, uh, you know, our talk today and, it had been so long since I'd seen it. I mean, the film went into production sort of late 2003, you know, which I guess is like 18 years ago or something. So I hadn't seen it for so long. It's nice to actually watch films when you've been removed for that long from them. But, you know, for me at the time, like it was, it was pretty technical, really. I mean, it was the first digital film that I'd ever worked on. The digital, the, you know, the digital technology was really coming through at that point and, you know, had, had been embraced by that Star Wars franchise. So, you know, my, my head a lot of the time was, in that world and I was looking at the film and I was thinking wow like you know probably 75% of that movie is created in post-production mm-hmm. you know it's not like a normal film you know like a film back in those days where you'd go on location you'd be there and you'd watch the film and you'd, you'd remember the locations like I look at that movie now and I'm like I don't remember really being in any of those locations or those rooms mm-hmm. or you know 80 90% of that room was blue or green screen when we were shooting it yeah and just the characters but but yeah it was cool I um I watch it again and, you know, you sit back and realise it's actually just a love story and it's like the, you know, <laughs> birth, if you want, of Darth Vader and, you know, introduction to the Wookiees and it was, um, yeah, it was super cool. But, yeah, little little moments stand out. I guess, you know, dialogue moments stand out really, like some really sort of, you know, they seem almost clunky but they're so cool, like some of the dialogue, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that movie. Like it's, um, that's kind of the main thing that bounces back at me is like a memory from there and, and obviously being in the room around those things when you were growing up, those first original Star Wars movies that were so massive in the lives of, you know, people my age when the first lot of movies came out and just, um, you know, being in the same room as a Wookiee or C-3PO or Darth Vader even, you know, like it was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, you you just mentioned the digital technology that was being used and like us, yeah. Attack of the Clones was the first movie to be fully shot with the digital camera. So I was wondering for you... Uh, what specifically about the shift from film to digital, What, how did that affect your job specifically? Yeah, well, it was kind of the first time. I mean, up until then, you know, I'd only worked with film. And so when you pull focus on film, you can't actually see. I mean, there's like um, HD monitors on the cameras and on set, but, you know, you really were relying on more old school, you know, things like running tape measures and, you know, putting marks down on the ground more and, and all that sort of stuff. And you really wouldn't see until you saw the projected dailies. Maybe one or two days later, you wouldn't actually see the work, the exact work that you'd done in terms of the focus and, and how everything looked. So I guess that was the biggest shift as a first AC was that suddenly, you know, the image is on set and you're mm-hmm. looking at a monitor. And the first time ever I'd use a monitor to actually pull focus with which is, you know, with the remote focus and have a high-def monitor in front of you and actually be looking at, you'd still have some marks on the ground and you'd still do a little bit of the traditional way, but you really were pulling focus 
from a monitor, which was completely different. You walk away at the end of the day knowing exactly what's in focus, exactly wasn't. Um, and, you know, that film actually wasn't particularly challenging from a focus point of view because those early digital cameras had smaller sensors on them and the, there's a greater depth of field of focus on those cameras. So in that respect, it was, it was kind of more low-key in the way. It, it was just like dealing with the other parts of the technology, like, you know, suddenly you had to, like, deal with black balancing the cameras in the morning. I mean, and, you know, there was a big department taking care of that, but... Still very technical, but on a different level to the normal, you know, ways of focus pulling that we were used to. Mm -hmm. So just out of curiosity, uh, what was George Lucas like if you interacted with him at all? Yeah. Well, he was definitely very approachable. I mean, you know, as a first AC, well, you know, myself anyway, I sort of, you know, you don't often get involved in conversations with directors all that often or, or with actors are sort of like try and fly under the radar as much as possible. But yeah, George was very approachable. I mean, he's a lovely man. Like he, he's a gentleman. He's a family man. He, um, he definitely didn't want to work like long hours. He knew exactly what he wanted. He was very organised. He turned up. We shot what we needed to shoot. He keeps it incredibly simple. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, faster and more intense is his famous phrase. Yeah. Well, he just, yeah, he knew what he wanted. I mean, this film was in production for probably nine weeks in terms of filming, and then it was probably another eighteen months of post production after that. So always felt like, well, you know, it was basically the shoot was basically to shoot the characters that weren't CG and get the dialogue. And then, and then it's almost like his work began then in terms of creating the world and mm -hmm. after that, but no, great experience. And I, I do remember like, you know, particularly with a lot of the union stuff that's going on at the moment with workplace conditions, like we would never work past five o'clock on a Friday, no matter what time we started on a Friday, because George is very big on, everyone going home and seeing their families and getting some rest over the weekend and then coming back on Monday. So no, it was a very enjoyable experience. Speaking of like the crew, what was it like working with David Tattersall, like the DP? And I guess like a follow-up question, um, yeah. when you're working with such CG heavy, like blue screen heavy, does that make it more difficult for you? Or is it just about keeping the the actors, you know, in focus, yeah. I guess? Um, yeah, yeah, David Tattersall, first, he's, he's a lovely man. I actually haven't had the opportunity to cross paths with him since, but, um, yeah, I just remember him being a very quiet, professional cinematographer who, you know, was very open to appeasing George in terms of shooting multi-camera and, um, you know, he just got it done. He bought his gaffer out from the UK, Eddie. It was amazing and, um, yeah, just very calm professional and, and I actually was looking yesterday when I watched the film again and was thinking like you know without early technology and those I guess that'd be considered lower end um video cameras now like that we shot on I think it was the Sony 900s I think they were called but um you know he he, he made the film look great I thought with with um with that technology and, and yeah in terms of the CG I mean again for me like as the first AC like at least you know the characters that aren't there at the time, they're going to be in focus. Like all of that's going to look great. Mm -hmm. Like they create all that later. And it's just really about the eye lines. You're constantly creating eye lines for the actors to be able to deal with these other characters. And there's, you know, there's all sorts of tricks that you do to make that happen. But yeah, so probably in terms of that world and having that amount of CG, probably the trickiest for the actors, you know, I'd say more so than us. Mm. Were the majority of the scenes multicam setups? Yeah, pretty much shot two cameras on, on everything. Um, yeah, yeah. And I remember George as well. We'd often like, we'd be on Zooms. We're on Zooms for 
for everything and would often just like position the camera and and even like not a lot of like camera moves into the closer setups would often just do the wide and then just zoom in a little for the mids and then you know zoom into the close-ups like it was isn't multicam pretty rare for a movie set compared to like a tv set where it's pretty common well that often depends on the filmmakers like you know some some you know, directors and dps are, are right into it like some dps i work with as a first ac would love shooting two three four cameras if they could you know some of them really enjoy the fact that the actors don't have to do it as often like you know you're capturing those moments maybe better than if an actor had to do it over and over again or, or an actor's dealing with another actor reading their dialogue off screen you know like if everyone's got a camera on them then they have to be on and the, the performance is happening and um, you know, whereas others, like, you know, depending on the genre of the film maybe or, or what they're trying to create, they, they really want to craft something with a single camera and feel like a second camera may take their eye off the, off the prize for that sort of work. So, yeah, look, it's very different, but definitely with television, you know, becoming more prominent and people shooting multicam more often, it's definitely you know, more, more normal now. I, I just came off a show called The Wilds and we basically shot three cameras on every setup, you know, where... Mm. We're shooting five, six pages of dialogue a day with, you know, large casts and and um, it's honestly the only way to get through the day. That's insane. Uh, well, I mean, speaking of insane shoots, uh, yeah. this is my little segue into some other work you've done, but um, yeah. I'm a huge, huge Tom Cruise fan and you worked on Mission Impossible 2. Uh, and I was just wondering if you have anything about that movie and... If you have anything about Tom Cruise, that'd be like that'd be craft services gold for us. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was fun. I mean, that was, you know, Australia back particularly then, like it's a little bit different now, but um, Australia was really, you know, uh, luring in large action movies because I think at that time the dollar was down, like it was good value for money for the Americans to come here. And if you're spending $100 million already, then it turned into $150 million here or something like that. So it was fun. We went through a run of like, you know, the Matrix movies and Mission Impossible and, and these other films that were, you know, large action movies. And I, I guess, you know, Tom Cruise, particularly at that time, was the king of those movies, you know. And, um, yeah, he definitely brought a lot of energy to set he, uh, you know, it's obviously, you know, it's a big star power on set and it was exciting working around uh, around him, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but in terms of specific stories, I don't know, I have to think about that one a bit longer. Did you have any interaction with John Woo at all on that one? Yeah. Yeah, John, um, John's an interesting guy. Like, he um, obviously, you know, Face Off and these other movies are a huge action film he did and coming from his um background in hong kong but uh yeah just a very quiet gentle man that you know loved to use huge explosions and 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 the largest noisiest like blank rounds you possibly could on set you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) which has changed now as well like you don't often um you know really i haven't seen for years now like shooting actually blanks on set it's just um doesn't happen anymore but um that's what I, i remember about him he um very friendly guy very quiet who liked making loud, huge action movies. Mm-hmm. Have you ever worked on a film in the U.S. or have you worked exclusively in, in Australia, in the motherland? So far, well, I've, I've worked all over the world, but um, not so much in the U.S. because, I mean, potentially now that I'm, I'm shooting, I'm hopefully hope, hoping to get some more work, um, you know, over in the U.S. at some point. But 
Um, yeah, just with the unions as, as a technician, like as a first AC and, um, you know, the way the unions exist, it's, um, it, it can't actually get into, into the States to work on, on, you know, union films. So but I've worked across, you know, through New Zealand and obviously across Australia and Europe and Asia and other parts of the world, but not so much in the US, no. You've talked a little bit about the union and I was just wondering how you ended up getting into that and then sort of what it provides, I guess, just because we have no real idea of how any of this works. Yeah, no, totally. And I'm sort of the same, to be honest. Like we have a we have a, a union in Australia, but it's nothing like the unions in Australia that, uh, that in the US that represent the crews. And, and I'm not actually a part of the union over there at the moment. Mm. Um, maybe in the future that'll come about, but... More so on social media lately, I've been seeing, um, you know, with union members over there. That was sort of from my comment before about that. But, um, yeah, so in terms of, you know, getting your hours up and working in the union and, and the difference between union and non-union um, members in the US, I'm not really across that either. Mm. Um, hopefully, you know, further down the track, I'll, um, I'll be able to come a part of that. A film I wanted to ask about was uh, The Thin Red Line. Yeah, uh, which which Robert e- Roger Ebert considers the best movie in the '90s, and you worked on it, which is super cool. So if you remembered anything about it, that'd be super great. Yeah, well, I um, yeah, that was one of the first films I did as a second AC, which was amazing. I, I actually worked on the on the second unit mainly. I mean, we went over as an additional camera and worked with the main unit some days, and I think um, some six days on Saturdays. You know, we're uh, with um you know, Terrence Malick and John Toll and working with them um, shooting on, on the main unit. But, yeah, look, again, that was amazing. I mean, it was in an amazing location in northern Queensland in Australia. Um, it had a huge list of massive actors that came out from the US to work on it. And, um, you know, it was amazing. Like, you know, Terrence Malick has his own process, which was interesting. Yeah, and we just blew stuff up and ran around and made a war movie. It was exciting. Yeah, um, yeah. one of the main things I remember from that film is that is that Terrence never watched rushes during the whole film. I mean, we probably shot millions of feet of film. And I just remember that he wasn't ever at dailies and his process was to just watch the dailies once the film had finished, which I thought was an interesting process from a director. Speaking of interesting directors, uh, you worked on Mad Max, Fury Road. What was that like? Because that's one of like the best movies of the past yeah. ever. The past 10 years. Yeah. Again, well, yeah, my IMDb may be a little misleading there because I actually I did work on the film for six weeks, but just on the on the pickups that they did back in Australia when they came back mm-hmm. to here. Um, I was originally in the mix to go over to Africa do that to do that film, but a few few things kind of changed around and I ended up staying in Australia and um, and working on the Wolverine film that was um, shot in Australia at the same time. But Oh, what was that like? I love that movie. Yeah, um, that was great. I loved it. I mean, you know, Hugh Jackman is one of the nicest human beings on the planet, oh, um, cool. taking into account all human beings, not just actors. But he, uh, it was great. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, his character in yeah, Wolverine is, is is great, and we shot in um, yeah we got to go to Tokyo. We shot in Tokyo for about five weeks and established all the location scenes there, and, and and some other work there, and then came back to Sydney for studio work and a small amount of location work in in, in Sydney after that. But um, yeah, that was a that was a super enjoyable shoot. 
So uh, the Matrix, and you were credited on, and then you were, quote, additional crew on the Matrix Reloaded, yeah. and we were wondering about your involvement in both and that distinction. Yeah, yeah again, um, yeah, the first Matrix film, I was second AC on, on the second unit on that film. Got to do a whole bunch of cool stuff. And I was just thinking about that the other day, actually, the in the first Matrix when the, when the helicopter flies into the building that, you know, these days that would just be computer generated. But back then we shot that on a, on a quarter scale in a on a property sort of a couple of hours out of Sydney and had a quarter scale building and a quarter scale helicopter full of explosives and, you know, shot that. I mean, I forget how many cameras were on that. It must have been close to 10 cameras shooting that. And Wow. It was cool. It was cool. It was. It definitely felt like at the time that you were working on a special film that was ahead of its time in terms of visual effects. And, and you know, even today, I, feel, I don't know what you guys think, but I feel like that, that film just really hasn't dated that much. Like it still stands up. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, certain elements to it that feel a bit dated. But, but yeah, an amazing film. And then, yeah, on the, on the other films, I was um, – that credit's just basically – you know, related to doing day playing on that movie. I think there was some other work around at the time and I sort of came in and out, but I didn't have a full-time position on the mm-hmm. on the sequels. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, a lot of your first AC work, sometimes second AC work, but you've also transitioned into being your a cinematographer in your own right. And yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about how that, how that process has been for you and what it's like being the head honcho on set yeah. about for yeah. the camera. Yeah, well, um. Yeah, I was lucky. Look, over all those years, I worked with some great cinematographers and I took a little bit from all of those people. And um, for a while there, I kind of just really stuck to first day seeing on TV commercials. I had a young family and, you know, just started working on commercials in Australia and overseas as a first AC and worked for a long time with a DP, uh, Danny Rawlman, who's who's now, you know, shooting US television all over the world. But, there were, you know, there was a point where he decided to move to the US and, um, you know, I'd been doing most of my work with him and I kind of thought, well, now's the time. If I'm going to start shooting, now's the time. I've got, you know, good contacts in the commercial industry in Australia and, and in the drama industry. So, yeah, it's a slow burn. You know, you start again. You, you've been so busy first day seeing and everyone wants to support you. But, you know, the first thing that happens is, like, uh, you know, people say, send us your reel. You know, we'd love to give you some work. And, and I'm like, well, I don't have a reel. I've just been assisting for, mm-hmm. you know, 15, 20 years and uh, so you start again, you, you know, you shoot charity commercials, you shoot short films, you shoot low-budget commercials, music videos and start again. But, you know, within a, a year or two there, you start developing, you know, relationships with directors and slowly but surely bigger commercials start happening and I've been fortunate enough to shoot some great short films which have helped give me, a, you know, leg up into the drama world as well and then you start reigniting those contacts from the earlier years and and um you know finally get some work on the board that puts you in the mix for smaller feature films and then you know leading on to now some bigger american tv work which has been great over the last few years so we were wondering what the last film you worked on was or what you have coming out next yeah um i worked on i ended up um I went up and shot second unit and then took over main unit for the last little block on um, a TV show called Nine Perfect Strangers, which has just been released on Hulu over in the US. And 
so that's just dropped, which was exciting. And then um, off the back of that, um, went up to Queensland, Australia, and and shot two of the blocks on season two of Amazon's The Wild, which just sort of finished production about a month ago. Yeah, I'm guessing that comes out early next year sometime. Um, so yeah, that's the last two dramas, and then and now till the end of the year, just just planning on dropping back into television commercials and and um, seeing the year out, and then seeing what happens next year as far as drama goes. Awesome, Trent. Is it time? To, oh wait, Trent, did you have a question? I had a little question before the question. Just in the way you phrased that, is there like like you you made it seem like there's like drama season and there's like TV season. So is that how there how it works? Like a few months out of the year, there's like consistent work, and the other time you go to like commercial stuff. No, it's sort of. I, I guess it's more so. I mean, there's no real season in in Australia in terms of that work. Like I sort of hear like there may be in South Africa and some places like that. There's bit more seasonal work but um no it's kind of more like you know the balance really um coming off five months of pretty intense drama work and just trying to get the balance and just drop back into commercials for a while and you know reconnect with loved ones and friends and and um you know plan the next move rather than going from you know back to back on drama I don't think um you know not that there was an opportunity for that this time but I I, I feel like uh, it's just more about spacing these things out and seeing what the next project is, rather yeah, you know, rather than it being seasonal. Sure. Uh, yeah. Parth, are you ready for the big Kahuna final question? Yeah, <laughs> I was just about to say. I think it's time. The last question we like to ask our guests is, "What is the last great film you watched?" And it can be a new watch or it can be a rewatch. And let's leave Revenge of the Sith out of it. Just and <laughs> what's your favorite snack at the movie theater? Oh wow! I haven't been to the theater for a while, but um, yeah. Well, to the second question first, I definitely like having a choc top at the movie theater. A little noise involved once that plastic wrap is off; it's pretty quiet. Sure, yeah. Um, and I actually watched I watched a great film last night. If Beale Street could talk, sure, mm-hmm. um, yeah, which I love. I I love Moonlight. Um, yeah, particularly the cinematography. Nice. Like I just. Um, yeah, I, I just find the cinematography in both of those movies amazing. So, yeah, that's probably the last great film I watched. Cool. Parth, you want to bring us out? Yeah, definitely. That was uh, it's a great movie. Um, yeah, thank you so much uh, to Matt Toll. He's worked on such movies as uh, Mad Max Fury Road, Revenge of the Sith that we've just talked about, uh, MI2 for the Tom Cruise fans out there. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on. It was a great conversation. Pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Trent. Parth. Matt Toll. We did that. We did it all right. I enjoyed it. I, dude, I had a good time. What a, what a way to end a winter about prequels. Uh, for the folks at home, this was, was this our most difficult miniseries to schedule? Being that I would say the only other thing that you could consider a miniseries was John Wick. Well, it was John Wick, and then we also did... Uh, the horror stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Which would you yes. say was harder to coordinate, horror or this? Because I feel like both had their challenges. I would say horror was a much broader category, it, yeah. it, especially since 
it's like two thirds of the movies that we did for horror month were like debatably thrillers. Um, but the star Wars prequels, there are three of them. Yeah. And, um, it wasn't particularly easy for us to find guests, but like we, we did it for you, but we overcame the obstacles because we're trying to get a little uptick in numbers and Benton Jew, Mark Sexton and Matt told they pulled through. Yes. Um, because people of the universe like to talk about Star Wars and more importantly to listen to other people talk about Star Wars. And we're 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 here for the people. We're people Trent, people persons people. The interviews for Prequel Winter are done. And this discussions for Prequel Winter have all been recorded, have they not? See, that is an interesting observation you're making. And while in a sense Prequel Winter is nearing its end, at the same time, it's only just beginning. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, I would say you're somewhere between 100% and 150% correct. And the funny thing is what you guys have in store is the crossover event of the century. We Can we reveal it? I feel like we should, it's, it, right? It's next it's week's episode. Cats out of the bag. And anyone who listens to the end of the interview deserves... Some fun bits. Yeah, they, they, they should get the confidential behind-the-scenes info. So next week, we are discussing Revenge of the Sith, and we are doing a little crossover, which we have been planning, and it's actually happening. It happened. Yeah, yeah, it's done. It just needs to be edited, Trent. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, hey, settle down. It just needs to be edited, but we are talking with Eye of the Duck co-hosts, Adam Volerich and Dominic Nero. And the funny, and like what I like about it is like our show's fine. It's pretty good. We have our moments. I, I think we're good. Yeah, but I the duck, like that's like pretty fucking beautiful. Like you know they're I mean? like they're like like they were my second most listened to podcast of the year, and I spend a lot of time listening to dumb old movie podcasts. I'm it's, just saying they were my number one. Whoa, just putting that out there. Parth likes them more than I do. Um, my number one was the Rewatchables, um, mm. a show that I also like. But I the duck, hometown. I'd like here. to re-listen to. Eh, check didn't work well. Anyways, let's move on. Oh, I see what you did there. But no, it wasn't that funny. But we okay. can we can move on and um, continue to um, exercise the common ground between us. Ms. Uh, clearly your comedic sense is really... Okay, yeah, no. <laughs> no, that's great, that's great. Uh, continue. But we happen to have a podcast together, and yeah. so we should just act excited about the big crossover event next week. Yeah, I mean, it. that concludes prequel winter, and then we're going to be going on a little bit of a hiatus. Yeah, we don't, like, the future of craft services, while we, like, know what is to come, like, in some sense, like, we've got some stuff lined up. Like, we're not leaving yeah. you completely hanging. Like, I would say... We already have two like solid interviews recorded. We're we not- have we have one pretty fucking solid interview that'll well we'll get into that later. But yes, but um, the show lives on. One of us would have to die. Wait, but we learned at the beginning of the episode that us and get friend of the show Matt Toll are never gonna die. Exactly. So I guess the good news for you muggles at home is that on your deathbed, even you can listen to us talk about. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or whatever. whatever. Yeah, my, my least favorite Indiana Jones movie. Yep. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's a little, I'm getting a little sentimental, Trent. Well, uh, we, we it's can It's going to be hard to see Star Wars go. 
we can say our like goodbyes. Well, we also we also have like like an end of the year special. Like is that? Ah, that's true. Ah, maybe maybe something will be coming out December thirtieth slash thirty first. I don't know yet. Yeah, I don't think we should get too nostalgic because we have like at least two more episodes coming out before before yeah. the the inevitable break. Since Parth and I are tired from, and also just it's like physically in we are physically incapable due to work schedules to record enough and release episodes during the month of January. Yes, uh, I think scientifically it has been concluded that this hiatus is necessary for both. I'd of say our... earned. You know, yeah. Have we missed a single week this year? I think we maybe missed like. Like, once we were in our groove, I think we maybe missed one week. Judas and the Black Messiah. That yeah, was that was the one time that we pushed an episode back. And I was kind of surprised. But once we had, like, everything in place for prequel winter, we couldn't be lazy because then prequel yeah. winter would exceed the year. I think that's one nice thing about doing, like, miniseries type things is it forces us to have to have episodes out every week. Yeah, you know, I think everything that's been said has been, you know, everything that's needed to been said has been said. We I agree. We've spoken plenty of words for, for one evening. Follow our social media. Give us a good review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. Uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in to all of our interviews. Thanks to Matt Toll for closing us out. Thank you to the loyal fans. If you're still listening to this point in the interview, you clearly like Parth and I. And let me be the first to say, we like you too. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's goodbye time. We started this and it was Christmas and we are finishing it and we it, it is no longer Christmas. It's the, tr- it's the next day now. It's actually, well, now we're speaking in the present for you guys because this episode comes out on the 26th and... It is 12.19 a.m. And Parth has the unique challenge of editing this whole episode tomorrow. It's going to be pretty fucking awesome, guys. If if you see Parth out on the street, give him a high five because he deserves it because, um, boy, was he in the fucking trenches with Adobe Premiere for like just four, four and a half hours just sinking, sinking audio files like you wouldn't believe. All right, Trent, enough of your bits. Your humor grows tiresome for me, okay? Okay, Parth. Um, you're the kid at the sleepover saying it's tomorrow now, but ah, I'm Trent. Oh, I thought that was a pretty good in, uh, impression. Impression of me. Bye, yeah. guys. Bye. Goodbye. Fuck I'm Team a- Deacons. Like yes, but Roger Deacons, if you're listening to this, we really ca- join. We really care for you and your work. Um, the helicopter shot at the beginning of Shawshank. Wow, good stuff. Okay, goodbye. The now. Shanghai fight, Skyfall. Bye, Roger. Thanks for listening. Please come on. Please come on. Please. Okay, now, goodbye.